Um, so today we're reading from John 15, 1 to 11. So if you have your Bible, grab your Bible out or your phone, um, but it will come up on the screen behind me as well. Um, so John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, so abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Hey everyone, uh, really nice to see you all here, um, really nice to see some new faces as well and if you are joining us for the first time, it really is great to have you with us, um, maybe uh, you've just made a decision that to start this year, you want to just check out a church, maybe you haven't been to a church for some time, maybe this is your first time ever and if that's the case, we're just so glad that you're here, we hope you feel really just welcomed and, and helped along in your journey. Uh, my name's Jacob, if we haven't met before, hopefully we'll get a chance to meet a little bit later as well. And we're going to jump in now into those verses that Anna just read for us. But how about we spend some time praying? Because our hope for the next half hour isn't just that we would go through the motions, but our hope for the next half an hour is that there would be certain aspects of what Jesus has said in those words that would actually connect with us and challenge us and impart life to us. So let's just pray that would be the case now. Heavenly Father, we just want to just, uh, thank you for the opportunity to come and to sit and uh, to experience some relative quiet and relative peace uh, and some time that we can just give over to you and your word and to the reflection of our own lives. And we just ask as we, um, as we step through these words together as a community that you'd be speaking to us, that uh, there would be things that you would draw out uh, from your words that would just, um, would just impact us and, and stick with us and challenge us um, and that you would be reminding us of your uh, deep and abundant love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've always uh, been someone who has struggled to maintain focus. I think I'd describe myself as chronically distractible. I'm the kind of guy that just has to take bathroom breaks just for a chance to walk around from whatever the thing is that I'm doing. And, uh, and so the ability to, just to sit still and listen for a long amount of time has just never come naturally to me. And sometimes I'll be up here and I'll look out at you guys, and it is a lot easier to see you than, than maybe you think, and I'll see, you know, I'll see someone doodling on the back of the white cards, dissembling the pen and, and putting it back together, looking out at the boats. And rather than being frustrated, I just think, ah, my people. <laughs> Solidarity to the doodlers and the fidgeters. I know how you feel. It's so unnatural just to kind of try to sit still. 
And, um, and so because that's what I'm like, last year when I saw a book come out that was titled Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, I was interested. So I got, I got the book and, and I read it. And, um, and Johan Hari, the author of this book, he outlines just the world that we live in and how um, so many forces around us in the world that we are kind of working, working our way through are just kind of training us to not be able to pay attention. He talks about how social media has evolved in the way that it has, that a few years ago, like videos were like a five to 10 minute YouTube video that you'd spend your time watching, whereas now 10 second TikToks are the most watched things out there. He talks about how uh, more and more people never read a full news article, we just read the headlines, either because it's easy or there's a paywall or whatever it is. He talks about how blogging used to be a thing like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but now it's just tweets are the, are the main way you get your thoughts out there. Talks about how many notifications we get every day, how often we attempt to multitask, texting one person or being on a Zoom with another person. And all of these things combined have led to a whole bunch of things that used to be relatively commonplace in the human experience, becoming less and less so. And one of the kind of most obvious things that has shifted in how we spend our time is how much time we spend reading. He writes, the proportion of Americans, and I'm guessing most is the same for Australians as well, but the proportion of Americans who read books of pleasure is now at its lowest level ever recorded. The American Time Use Survey, which studies a representative sample of 26,000 people, found that between 2004 and 2017, the proportion of men reading for pleasure had fallen by 40%, while for women it was down 29%. So, well done, women. Only 29%. That's, that's doing pretty good. He then goes on to say that... Um, between 1978 and 2014, the uh, a number of people that never read a book in a given year had tripled. And in 2017, the average American spent 17 minutes a day reading and 5.4 hours on their phone. Now, that's just reading. You could take other practices that like, you might read about if you read an old book, like someone um, journaling at the end of the day. I think like 100 years ago, it was pretty common. You'd kind of get to the end of the day, you'd debrief your thoughts by writing out your what you did, what you felt, letter writing would be another one. All of these things that used to be commonplace is becoming less and less so because we are trained for the immediate and trained for the quick. Nicholas Carr, who wrote another book about this phenomenon called The Shallows, what the internet is doing to our brain, um, sums it up like this. He says, what the net seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it, in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Now the reason I'm throwing all this out now here is because these changes in how, we, how our minds work and how we spend our time have got profound impacts for the development of a personal faith. For centuries, one of the, the key way a given person, a, a Christian person, has grown in their, in their maturity as a disciple of Jesus, in their knowledge of him, in, in having a life that is joined up with the reality of gospel truths, has been through things such as reading, in particular reading the Bible, in meditating, in contemplating, in reflecting, in praying. All of these things that contribute to build up an inner world. But if we neglect these things, or, or even more than that, if we actually lose the ability to engage in these things, our inner spiritual lives suffer. 
And so it might be just trying to be worth trying to think back over the last seven days and just think about how much time did you give over to developing yourself? And not your physical self, I'm not talking about how much time you spent exercising and that kind of thing, but how much time did you give to shaping your inner being, to feeding and nourishing your soul, into giving conscious attention and effort to the type of person you are becoming? Today what we're going to be looking at from Jesus' words is this reminder, this appeal, this, this plea to remain in Jesus, to live in him, and I guess in doing that, to hold to some of the disciplines and practices that keep alive a deep connection with Jesus. What we're going to be seeing is that, that an ongoing, real connection with Jesus is the only way to bear fruit. Like Cam alluded to before, we're in a four-week series just for the month of January as we just kind of re-wake up to the year and think about what's ahead. And we've decided just to look at, at four chapters from the book of John, which is often referred to as the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus has gathered his, his closest friends and followers around a, a dinner table. They're celebrating the Passover meal. It's the night before Jesus is then going to be arrested and then executed. And he's using this time where he's got all of his people together, he's got their attention around a meal, to let them know how they can keep going when he is no longer with them. To prepare them for the rest of their lives of maintaining their faith and their trust and their dependence and their joy when Jesus is not physically with them. And what he lays out here is that there is a need for real connection with Jesus. Let me read the first uh, four verses that we just heard again. From verse 1 of chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So we see Jesus introduce this metaphor that it's going to kind of carry him through this section where he's talking about a vine. He refers to himself as the vine, that God the Father as the vine dresser, and then speaks of the branches which are shown to be his disciples. Now, I'm not like a super botanical person, but if you've been um, to a vineyard, you'd know that grapes are grown on vines. They're not like kind of George the Jungle Vines, obviously, but the kind of the, the woody um, tree-like vines that grow along a, a, a trellis. And off these vines, then you have the kind of the newer growth, the, the green shoots of branches, and then, and then grapes on top of that. And the viability of the branches, the viability of the grapes, are 100% obviously dependent on their connection to the vine. It is the vine that is the source of life of energy, of nutrients, and of water. A couple of years ago, I was having dinner with, uh, with my wife Sarah's granddad, who is Croatian, and he uh, grew up in, in Croatia, I guess in the 30s and, and, and 40s, in a, in a relatively kind of rural, um, in a rural area. And he told us a story, um, which I don't think my wife had heard at the time, because it's a pretty gnarly story, as, you, as you'll hear, where he, when he was a, like an early teenager, was hanging out with a friend in the town, doing some kind of mischief. I don't really know what. He wasn't particularly clear about that. But someone in the town, this older guy, came up to them, 
reprimanded them, somehow humiliated them in front of the town, like give them a bit of a box across the ears and sent them on their way. And being like still kind of small kids, they, they couldn't really fight back, even though they felt obviously just angry at what had happened. But this particular man who had reprimanded them, he, was, uh, he, had, a, he had a vineyard. And so what Sarah's granddad decided to do um, is under cover of darkness, he and his friend went to the vineyard and systematically just cut the bottom of every vine where it connects to the ground, thereby destroying this man's entire livelihood. <laughs> now, pretty gnarly, I know. There's two, two lessons to be gleaned from that. Lesson one that I just took to heart is not to get on the wrong side of Sarah's granddad. He might look like a little old man, as granddads do, but he's got some darkness in there that, um, that you, got, you don't want to cross. But the second lesson is one about vineyards, which, is, which points to what Jesus is saying here, which is for a vine to be successful, it needs, uh, it needs life. The moment that is severed, the whole thing falls apart. The, the success of the vineyard, the success of its fruits is dependent on the vine. And that's just what Jesus is trying to heart. It is not a complicated metaphor. It's not particularly confusing. He's just saying that just like a branch bearing fruit needs to stay connected to the vine or it will die, so too Jesus' followers need to stay connected to him. And this metaphor is really helpful in helping us understand really what a Christian even is. Often we just throw kind of language around of being a Christian or being a follower of Jesus. And we can think of that in a whole bunch of different ways. Maybe we tend to come at it thinking intellectually. That is like a Christian is someone who believes a certain set of ideas. Or culturally, a Christian is someone who speaks a certain way, dresses a certain way, kind of fits into a certain kind of niche of society. Or, or ethically, a Christian is someone who, who does these things and doesn't do these things. But what we see from this illustration from Jesus in terms of how he sees his followers or how he would define what a Christian is, if he was to use that language, is that a Christian is a person who is connected to Jesus in such a way as his life, his energy is flowing into them and through them. Someone who is actually internally nourished by a living and active connection to Jesus. We're talking about a connection that is spiritual, that is relational, that is supernatural even. That key to being a follower of Jesus, of being a, a Christian or a disciple, is having a life-giving connection to Jesus. I think that's helpful to remember because often we think of it in terms of these other kind of more external things, but this is what Jesus says. To remain a follower of Jesus, we need to maintain a life-giving connection. That is the only way to see fruit. And we kind of know this. Like if you were walking down the street and you saw someone with like a nice big mango tree in their front yard, you wouldn't be like jackpot, cut a branch off, take it home, put it on your dining table and say, I'm set for life, the fruit's going to grow. Because the moment you take that branch from the tree even though it might look in the immediate like everything, every other branch that is still on there, from that moment forward, it is going to wither and die. Jesus helping us to think, look, we need to be connected. It is the only way, the only way to life. That's the first thing we see. But as we read on from verse 5, the, the second, I guess, truth that, that Jesus is holding out from these verses is that a connection with Jesus leads to fruitfulness. Where it says in verse 5 and 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus said there's, there's two types of branches. There's one type of branch that bears fruit and another that doesn't. And the difference between the two, it comes down to abiding, living in, connecting with. And what happens if you abide in Jesus is that you bear fruit. And from other parts of Jesus' teaching, you can, you can see that when he uses this metaphor of fruitfulness, what he, that's kind of a shorthand for all of the, the changes that come with living a life that is powered by him. It's, it's talking about things like obedience, generosity, love, mercy, kindness. And what Jesus is saying is that people who experience a deep connection with him will have their lives changed in this way. There will be these outward noticeable differences about them. And the absence of fruit is indicative of an absence of connection. Because if you lose connection to the vine, you lose ability to bear fruit. Now it's worth being though careful how we read that, because maybe as you kind of read that and you hear about these kind of two branches, the first thought that might come to mind will be, well, geez, I don't want to be like the second branch that's like burnt. Um, so I better, get, I better get bearing fruit. I better be fruitful. So I'll focus on that. I'll, I'll make sure that I'm a loving person. I'll make sure that I'm doing right. I'll make sure that I am showing these changes because I want to be right. But that's not where Jesus places the emphasis. Focusing on the fruit to the detriment of focusing on the inner life is actually problematic. If you focus on just bearing fruit and neglect the connection that Jesus is holding out as important, you end up in some, some pretty dire circumstances. A few, a few things tend to happen in, in, in our lives. And as I go through a couple of these, maybe just be thinking, is, is any part of what I'm describing, describing how you are at the moment? Because the first thing that a focus on just the external life to the detriment of the inner connection with Jesus will lead is to a superficial discipleship. If the sum total of what it means for you to be a Christian are the things that are visible to those around you, like coming to church or just the fact that you call yourself a Christian or that you, you know, do a certain few kind of nice things that you associate with being a Christian that are noticeable to others, um, but have no deep connection, no joy, no intimacy, no prayer life, what you are is just superficial. It's a bit like if you've, if you've ever been on like a TV or a movie set, if you've been to like Fox Studios or Movie World or maybe Disney World, I haven't been to that one, but you, you had the experience of actually walking on, onto like a real life, um, real life set. And f- when you're on set, like it, it, you, it looks like you're in an alien spaceship or like a, um, an old kind of western cowboy town or whatever it is because all this effort has been made from one angle for it to look believable, to look like the real thing. But if you ever walk around the back, you see the whole thing is just kind of plywood, sticky tape, and it's just held up because it is designed to be seen from one angle and one angle only. It's not the real thing. I think with enough effort, it is possible to put up a facade and appear to people looking at you like you're the real deal, like you have a connection with Jesus, like, like you're one of his people, but really it's just a front. That behind the scenes, if anyone could look a little bit deeper, they would see that there is nothing deeply there. Jesus is saying, no, the focus needs to be on actually maintaining that real connection. 
The second place, though, it might leave, not just simply to a superficiality, but to, a, to an exhausting discipleship. Whereas I think often you can have the motivation to be like, a, you know, have a superficial discipleship, which is to keep up appearance. When it becomes exhausting, is probably because your motivation genuinely is that you want to be right. You want to be good. You want to be a person whose life is lived out in line with the life that Jesus has put out as the ideal. But you find that doing that is terribly exhausting. Maybe you feel the guilt that you're not good enough. Maybe you struggle to say no, particularly even with things like helping out at church because you just want to be doing right. You want to be holy. And often the reason that that can become really exhausting is when you don't have a sufficient intimacy with God to sustain your doing for God. But what does Jesus say in these verses? He says, without me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the only way you can live a life that is in line with the life that God has called you is if you are fueled and powered by the the animating, life-giving love of Jesus within you? So often we just think it's all about just the doing. It's all about just just living the, the right life. And if you're familiar with the story of Mary and Martha, there's an account in the Bible of Jesus going to the home of these two women. And, and, the, and the contrast just couldn't be more clear. One of the women, Martha, is running around trying to get the house clean, trying to get the food ready so that she can serve Jesus, so that she can make him feel welcome there. Whereas Mary just sits at Jesus' feet and listens and is served by him. And Martha is frustrated at this because she feels that it's, it's not good enough. We need to impress this Jesus. He's in our home. And Jesus points out, no, he came not to be served but to serve. We need to have a sufficient being with Jesus to sustain our doing for Jesus. Often when we are tired and worn out as followers of Jesus is because we're trying to squeeze something out of ourselves that isn't being replenished. But, like a branch on a vine, we need a life-giving source to be constantly nourished, to be constantly hydrated and energized for what we are doing. If you're feeling that weariness, it's not a nice thing to feel because it's not how it's meant to be. But the third place that focusing just on the external, focusing on the fruit rather than cultivating this inner life, where it leads to is just an abandoned discipleship. Jesus points to, in his analogy, to a, a type of person who, on first glance, maybe appear to be connected to the vine, but really they're not. And so they're just kind of looking, looking the part, but they're, out, but they're inwardly dead, who eventually become detached, fall off, and are really serving no particular use. And it's kind of a pretty confronting image that he's putting forward of, of this disconnection, and it isn't where you want to be. But he's speaking into a reality. And it's the reality that if you're in any church long enough that you inevitably see where there have been people that have sat as you guys are sitting in this room, have come along and made the effort to get up on a Sunday morning and, and do, do all the things. But, but inwardly, when they're asked about it later, they say, look, nothing was really going on. There was no intimacy. There was no love. They didn't feel changed. And typically it's when something goes along, like COVID was a little bit of this, when like COVID kind of rocked the boat a little bit. Um, those who, who don't really have that connection end up falling off, walking away. 
Now, it's a hard reality, but what you've got to remember is that Jesus is speaking to people, warning them, lovingly warning them to not let this be you. And so he would say to you, if you're someone who's feeling, well, maybe that's me, maybe I'm actually kind of heading for the door, maybe I'm, I've, I'm neglecting this connection, I don't, don't feel like it's there, I don't know how much longer I've got in me, Jesus would tenderly say, look, go back to the, back to the beginning. Go back to that connection and, and, and remain connected. Abide. Live in me. Be rejuvenated. This is what Jesus calls us to do so that we don't end up with just a superficial faith or an exhausting, burnt-out discipleship, or that we don't end up just walking away. So Jesus calls us to abide in him. So how do we do this? Up to this point, we've just been talking about this kind of intangible kind of concepts and you know, using language like abiding and connecting to the vine. What does it actually look like? As you read the next few verses, I think Jesus gives us some more tangible clues to what he's speaking about when he says to remain in the vine. Look firstly at verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So the first kind of, I guess, clue towards what Jesus is really speaking about here is in this line, he says, if you abide in me, and what goes along with that? My words abiding in you. That there'd be an element to life with Jesus. He's talking to his disciples about what's going to happen once he's no longer with them, that they need what he has said, the words he's spoken to them, to be inside them in such a way that it takes hold of their heart. He then says this line that can be... um, one that you can spend a whole lot of time thinking on, which is, what, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And I think what he's getting at here is, if it's the case that your life is changed by Jesus' words living in you to shape your words, your desire, your will around his, then the things that you ask for are going to be the things that he would ask for, the things that are in line with his will, that God would be glorified, that the church would grow, that we would bear fruit. And Jesus is saying, yeah, if your life is changed, if my words live in you, this will be the case. So that's the first piece. So hold that in your, in your mind because we're going to come back to that, that we need to have Jesus' words living within us. But in verses 9 to 11, we just get a little bit more that I think clarified even further. Verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, it's a pretty crazy thing that Jesus says here, which is that he loves us as much as he, the perfect Son of God, is loved by the Father who he has existed with for all eternity. That's a major claim. Jesus is saying there is a love that you, you are loved with that is the biggest love in the universe. That every single one of Jesus' followers is loved in a, on, a, on a scale so, so large that we, c- we couldn't even try to get our heads around it. And Jesus says to them, there's this love, I've loved you. What do you have to do now? Well, stay in that love. Stay living in that love. Surround yourself with that love. 
just as he surrounds himself with his Father's love. So abiding in the vine, having, having Jesus' words live within us, having our life with a sufficient experience and living within of the reality of God's love for us in such a way that we are inwardly transformed and renewed. So how do we do that? How do we live a life that ensures that we've got Jesus' words living within us? That we're experiencing his, his relational, deep love for us? Well, there's no shortcut for this. The only way to be filled with Jesus' words is to hear, remember, know Jesus' words. Be reminded by, of them regularly. How do we remain in his love? But by spending time in a relationship with him. Sitting in that intimacy with God. We need to slow down to spend time with God and experience this union with him. And this is why we need to be a people as the church who can learn the extremely countercultural art of fostering an inner life. In holding to ancient disciplines of reading the Bible, of prayer, of meditation. That this is of the most importance. And you might feel, look, that's just kind of the stuff you do at home. What we need to be doing as a church is, is being out there, who's making a difference, who's righting the wrongs in this world. The world is so messed up, we don't have time to stop and read the Bible. We've got to go out there love people. We've got to care for the poor. We've got to get this message out there. But we've got to get it the right way around. Jesus says without him we can do nothing. For us as a church, which we desperately want to be, we want, we want to be a church who impacts this city. I want this church to be known as a, as a place of love and kindness and mercy, having an impact beyond our size. But the only way that we can be that church is if we are transformed by Jesus' love from the inside out. I love these lines from an author, Pete Scazzaro. He says, Because the love of Jesus in you is the greatest gift you have to give to others, who you are as a person, and specifically how well you love, will always have a larger and longer impact on those around you than what you do. Your being with God, or lack of being with God, will trump, eventually, you're doing it for God every time. We cannot give what we do not possess. We cannot help but give what we do possess. We want to be a church that possesses the love of God. Really possesses it, really knows it, so that as we go to work each day, as we spend time with our friends and family, we are offering something tangible that we have. So we need to be a people committed to maintaining this connection with Jesus. Now last week I was up here preaching and I ended the talk saying, I think relatively casually, you know, if you haven't been reading your Bible, 2023 is a new year, maybe a good chance to get back on it. Anyway, and I got home, and I was thinking, that didn't really land. Because um, sometimes I like, often analyze after, I'm like, I'll do this different. And I think the, what I was feeling disconnected with, with what I'd set up here, is that I set it quite casually. And I don't think you can casually ask people to do something that is extremely radical and countercultural. In a world that we're programmed for just instantaneous satisfaction, when we're used to reading 160-character tweets 
watching 10-second videos, task-switching every two minutes to something new, in a world in which busyness is a virtue that we wear with pride, stopping for an extended time regularly to spend time with Jesus is a crazy thing to do. And I'd go, if, you're, if you are out of the habit of doing that, you've never had the habit of doing that, then starting is not going to be easy. It isn't something you just casually waltz on into. If the way you plan to start doing this is just to kind of hope it'll happen this week, it's probably not going to happen this week. It may have used to be maybe more the case when like people didn't have lights and went to bed early and took daily strolls around the garden as like a, what you did in the afternoons, but that's not the world we live in now. So I actually want to challenge you to take this seriously and commit to doing something radical. It is radical to do something that very, very few people in this city do. To slow down from busyness, to disconnect from technology, and to enter into silence and spend time with God. And for you to think about your own life and your specifics, what are the steps you need to take in order for that to happen? Because the goal is a connection with Jesus, the goal is life, and the goal is fruit. So what are some of the things that you might need to do this week? Is it reclaiming a portion of your home to have a space that is predictably quiet, comfortable, and distraction-free so you've got a place you can go to be alone with God? Is it setting up screen time on your iPhone? Um, or I don't know if Android has one of these things, but I don't, no one has an Android. A couple of you do. But getting, getting screen time set up so that the first part of the day and the last part of the day, your phone isn't competing with your attention. Is it buying a lockbox for your phone or your laptop or whatever it is? You can buy on Amazon a box with like a, you shut it and you set a timer and you physically can't open it without smashing it for an hour or whatever you say. So you can just do the act of putting your phone in there and saying, while it's in there, I'm with God. Is it buying yourself a journal and a, and a pen that works that doesn't like stop every second letter so you can actually journal some thoughts down and, and, and train your mind to think a thought for more than a minute? Is it buying earmuffs if you've got kids and your home's just loud and crazy? Is it leaving home 15 minutes early? Maybe you, you walk to the train or the bus stop every morning and you walk past a nice little park along the way and you're going to start leaving 15 minutes early so you can stop in that park and pray and read before you continue your commute. Is it setting a reminder on your phone or an alarm on your phone to get out of bed at the time you need to get out of bed to read the word in the morning? Is it buying a physical Bible if you've become reliant on your phone? Is it finding a friend, someone in your city-like community or someone else who you just commit for the next little while to texting each other in the morning as you both read just to kind of help each other along with some encouragement in doing so? Is it creating for yourself a rule that you're not going to have your morning cup of coffee unless you've already read your Bible first? Or you're going to pair them together and say, coffee and Bible, they're together, they don't go separate. What is it going to be for you? Is it going to be taking one of those daily reading plans that Anna's put together? Um, they are a great resource. They're not going to be for everyone necessarily. You may already have a plan that you're sticking with and it's working for you and fantastic. But if, you are, if what you're doing now isn't working, I, can, I just want to encourage you just to grab one of those. And spend a whole bunch of time this week just thinking about how to put it together so that, so that the time you spend reading those passages listed there are going to be God speaking to you with these eternal, life-giving truths about who he is and what it means to walk in him. 
I want to encourage you to take a radical step this week and for you to figure out what that is for you. But the reality is that if we're to be a people who press on in connection with Jesus, we will have to do something. And Jesus is pleading with his disciples to remain in him, to stay in his love, to live in him, to have his words live in us. And our prayer is that that will be true for us as a church. And that will strengthen us, give us life to go and do all the other things that God is calling us to do as his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to ask that you'd be with us this week. And I know for me that I need to hear this and to do this as much as, if not more, than most of the people here. That I have not been disciplined in this area. That I have spent more time this week doing things for you, even just prepping for today, than I've actually spent being with you. And Lord, if there are others here in this room who feel the same, they've not spent much time with you, they've not been filled up even if they've been pouring themselves out, or they've, it's been maybe some time since they felt like there is something behind the scenes, something deep within them. Or maybe there are people here who feel like they're on their last legs as one of your followers, who aren't sure if they'll be here in a month's time or six months' time or a year's time. We just want to ask that you, by your sustaining grace and providence would hold us to you. We thank you that it doesn't just depend on us remaining in you, but we have the guarantee that you will remain in us. It is your words that give life, that without you we can do nothing, and that you have loved us with the same love that you have received from the Father. Jesus, we ask that we would be able to experience you deeply and profoundly as your people. Jesus, we ask that you would give us life, that we would know your love for us and be able to share that love with others. That we would be able to know your intimacy and your hope and share that intimacy and hope with this city. That through us, your love would go out and people would know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.